All right, Bereans, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I am so thankful to have another Sunday to provide maybe some clarity to what was difficult to communicate last week. Some of you said, I got it, and others you said, no, I didn't get it at all, so I get a do-over, and I'm always thankful for do-overs. Let's begin reading in verse number one of chapter five of the uh, Gospel of John. Our focus will be verse 14, but let's remind ourselves of what the context was. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, change of elevation there. Now there, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate this pool, and this pool would bubble is what the, the thought was. And when it did, in fact, bubble, there was a race to get into it uh, for this perceived healing power. Verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, so they're around the pool, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, He walks up to him and says, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So clearly he believes he's got to be the first one in the pool. Whoever the first one is gets healed. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. At once the man was healed and he took up his mat, he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, referring back to the Jews, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn. So Jesus had left as there was a crowd in the place. Verse 14. And we have no idea how much time has transpired from the period in 13 To the word afterward in verse 14. Days, a week, hours. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him. So he's now found the man that he healed. And he says, see, you are well. That's the first thing he communicates. The second thing I underlined in my Bible. It's kind of shocking. He walks up to the man and says, see, you are well. Sin no more. Sin no more. Don't ever sin again. Sin no more. Why? That nothing worse may happen to you. Father, I pray that this would be an exceptionally productive time in your word this morning. That your people would be given ears to hear and eyes to see. That I would do a better job of communicating truth. And provide clarity to what we talked about last week. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So our focus is exclusively verse 14. We notice the deliberate effort with which Jesus goes to find this man afterward Jesus found him. He makes the correlation. I'm the one that healed you. Don't forget about this. You're well because of what I said. Get up and walk. Having now established that the relationship between I'm the one that healed you, see you are well, Jesus issues these three words. Sin no more. If we read these words and we don't take them seriously, if we just gloss right over them, if we think to ourselves, what he really means is don't sin a lot or, or sin just a little bit or, or I don't really mean this in the gravity of what I'm saying to you, then we're missing the intentionality. It's like your dad saying to you, don't ever do that again. Don't ever sin again. Don't just sit there and, and like, oh, okay. No, I need you to grab a hold of the fact that the man said to you, don't ever commit another sin in your entire life. Sin no more. This is an incredibly provocative statement. Let's be honest. Who can sin no more for five minutes? Who can sin no more until lunchtime? Try it. Let's see if you can get to three o'clock. Let's see if you can get a good solid three and a half hours in which there's no sin whatsoever in your life. Make it a half a day without any sin. But Jesus didn't say a half a day. Jesus didn't say a week. Jesus didn't say a month. He said sin no more. Unless we think he's not serious, Jesus says that nothing worse may happen to you, clearly implying that if he doesn't get this fixed, something worse is going to happen to him. We need to understand these three words. Church, where is the first mention of the word sin in the Bible? Where is the first mention of the word sin in the Bible? Yeah, it's Genesis. You're on the right track if you said Genesis. That's good. It's Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. So let's turn back there. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And we're going to be new, old, new, old. We're going to be all over the place this morning. Let me remind you of the context of the text. This is Cain. Cain's frustrated that God did not accept his offering the way he accepted Abel's. God and Cain are having a conversation. And Yahweh says to Cain, if you do well, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It's not too late. You can turn this thing around. Yes, you presented to me a garbage offering. We're not done. Go back and get a better offering. We can get restored. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, here's our first mention of sin in the Bible. Not chapter three, chapter four. If you do not do well, sin, sin is doing what? It's crouching. See how he personifies sin? He makes it into a little monster of sorts, crouching at the door. It wants to go with you. It wants to be in your backpack. It wants to be on your shoulders. It wants to go to work with you. It doesn't want to leave you alone. You can't just put it in the closet. 
Sin is crouching at the door. Notice, please, sin's desire is contrary to you. It doesn't have your best interests at heart. Sin doesn't love you. Sin is not seeking to be your friend. And then Yahweh tells Cain, you, Cain, must rule over it. We can paraphrase that and say, you, Cain, must sin no more. No more. In other words, every single time sin rears its ugly little head, barking in your ear, crouching at the door, leading you astray, you're supposed to smack it down. You're supposed to rule over it. You're supposed to say, stay at home. You're not coming with me. You're not getting in the car. You stay at home. I need you with me, sin. I've got to rule over you. You know what I'm talking about. Be selfish. No, I'm not supposed to be selfish. Be angry. No. Be kind. No. Be gracious. No. On and on. Whatever it is. This competing here. You're supposed to, you're supposed to stomp it down. You're supposed to sin no more. That's overwhelming. How dare you tell me I'm not supposed to sin anymore? How dare you infer that I'm not supposed to sin anymore? Sin no more? The, the Greek word here in John 5, 14 is the exact same Greek word in the, in the um, Septuagint. In this Genesis 4, 7 passage. Clearly establishing the correlation. And again, please notice, ruling over sin is much like sinning no more. Where did sin come from? Where did sin come from? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 5, 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So sin came from the disobedience in the garden. Eve followed by Adam broke God's moral law and sin and death entered the world. Wayne Grudem, here's our author, Systematic Theology book, defines sin as any failure to conform to the moral law of God in an act or an attitude or nature. Let me read that again. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in an act, attitude, or even our nature. How many have heard of natural law before? You've heard of natural law. Anybody heard of natural law? All right, good. Let's turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 14. I want to introduce you to natural law. I want to introduce you to the idea of natural law. Say, so why are we talking so much about the law? Well, we're talking about the law because... Jesus told the man to what? Sin no more. Don't break any laws. Don't ever violate a law. Don't transgress a law. Don't ignore a law. Follow God's laws. Follow them perfectly. So in Romans chapter number 2, verse 14, Paul writes, When the Gentiles or the non-Jews, the ethnicity that isn't Jew, when those who aren't Jews, who do not have the law of Moses, they don't have the law of Moses, by nature, that's why we're calling it natural law, by nature, do what the law requires. 
They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. I'm going to show you some examples of this. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. This is our explanation as to why all societies everywhere on the North Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, everywhere, everyone agrees stealing is wrong. We cannot find any cultures where it's okay to steal. We can't find anywhere where there is not a prohibition against stealing. There's all cultures everywhere, stealing is wrong. Say, how did we get here? How did we get to such a universal moral law? How, how did we arrive at such a universal? We all evolved from monkeys. So how in the world did we get a universal natural law? It's God's law. That's right. It's God's law written on the hearts and minds of the people God created. Of all ethnicities. And I want to show you this. I, I want to demonstrate this to you. In Genesis chapter number nine, Noah is drunk and something is happening with nakedness. And this is so serious that it results in a curse upon a grandson of Noah. Yet, reading Genesis one through nine, nothing is in the text that prohibits drunkenness. Nothing. Read it. Go back and read it all afternoon. You will not find anything about drunkenness from chapter 1 through 9. And yet Noah is being held as a drunk. And it's not a good thing. And something with nakedness, something inappropriate with nakedness, some type of immorality associated with sexual conduct is also being condemned. Yet nothing is recorded in the scripture up to this point about either being wrong. Say, why are we even having this conversation? Let me see if I can use these stands right here to help illustrate the point I'm trying to make. So this first stand is the giving. Let's move it over here. Let's move this stand over here. This is the giving of the Mosaic Law. This is the giving of the Mosaic Law. This is the Ten Commandments. This is all the commandments on top of that, all 613. They're all right here stacked up here. And this law remains in place all the way up until Christ sets it aside. That's what we talked about last week. Christ setting aside the law of Moses. That the law of Moses was put in force, Exodus chapter 19. And then upon the death of Christ, the law of Moses lost its guardian position over the people of God. So here's what we want to talk about. What does it look like going this way? And I'm showing you this morning that way over here, before we get to the law of Moses, we're in Genesis chapter 9 right here. Genesis 9. We're not even close to the law of Moses. We got a thousand years into the law of Moses. At least we're over here. And drunkenness is wrong without a law. But we're not done. There's lots of examples. It's ridiculous how much is in the text. Let me give you another one. In Genesis 13, Pharaoh knows he can't have Sarai as his, Abraham's wife. He's a pagan king and he's rebuking Abraham for lying. So we've got the sin of adultery and we've got lying without a moral law right here. 
So what is this law right here? It's natural law. It's what God has written on the hearts and minds of all humans. How about Genesis 19? Lot went out to the men at the entrance. He shut the door after them. This is Sodom and Gomorrah, about where the trumpet is. And said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. In order to have that which is wicked, you have to have that which is what? Right. You have no wicked without right. Just like you don't have an up without a down. You don't have sweet without sour. So here we are. We have something that is wicked. And do we have a moral law given on stone tablets yet? No, we don't. Turn to Genesis chapter 20, please. Turn back to Genesis 20 for a a more elaborate detail of this very idea. Genesis 20. This is the second time that Abraham has struggled with this whole idea of Sarah being his sister. This is a problem throughout the narrative. So in verse number one, we read, From there Abraham journeyed towards the territory of Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. He sojourned in Kerah. Verse two, Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Ger, sent and took Sarah. Well, I'm going to take her because she's your sister, not your wife. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. What a nightmare that was. Why? Because of the woman who you had taken, for she is a man's wife. So with no moral law as communicated in the law of Moses, we have already showed you multiple examples on this stage of a right and a wrong, a right and a wrong, a right and a wrong. This is God's moral law existing before Exodus chapter 19. Nod your head if you're getting that idea. It's clearly there. And nothing in the New Testament rescinds any of that. Nothing rescinds any of that. That's still the law of God to this day. So having heard that he's a dead man, God came to Abimelech in a dream of night and said, Behold, you are a dead man because the woman whom you've taken, she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So yes, he invited her over, but he had not crossed any line yet. So he said to the Lord, will you kill innocent people? The only way you can have innocent is if you have moral right and wrong. He did not himself say to me, she is my sister. Isn't that what he told me? And she herself also lied to me and said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from what? Sinning. Yahweh here is taking credit for keeping him on this side of the line instead of this side. Because on this side, he remains innocent. If he crosses over here, he is a sinner. And this is all pre-law of Moses. 
So now let's look at 1 Corinthians 9. We looked at it last week. Let's look at it again with even greater clarity. Verse 21. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. I showed you this verse last week to show you how we're not under the law of Moses anymore. We're not under the law. Some of you text me, ask questions about that. That was awesome. And I want to provide even more clarity as to what we're under and what we're not under. So in verse 20, we looked at verse 20 last week. Paul says, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under law, that I might win those under the law. Now, verse 21, he writes, to those outside the law of Moses, those would be non-Jews, commonly called Gentiles. He says, to those outside the law, I put in there of Moses to make sure we know which one he's talking about. I became as one outside the law. Not, listen to this important point of clarification, not being outside. So I'm not outside the law of God. But instead, I am under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. So let's make sure we understand what Paul's talking about. Go over to Evan's house, and Evan is a Gentile. He's a good Gentile. And at Evan's house, he can eat anything he wants, right? So he's going to serve me some food that is not kosher. It is a clear violation of the Mosaic law. But I'm Paul trying to win Evan to the Lord, trying to show him the gospel. And he serves up some non-kosher food, John. And I just eat right at it. I don't think anything about it. I just get right into that barbecue. I slice off that sausage. I enjoy some sauerkraut. I've got those onions and potatoes cooked with that sausage. And I have a, it's good, good eating. And I have a great meal. And I don't think one ounce about the law of Moses because I'm not under the law of Moses. I don't bring kosher into our conversation. I'm under, number one, the law of... I'm, I'm not outside the law of God. I'm under the law of Christ. So let me see if I can show you what this looks like. I've got three rectangles on the screen for those listening on the audio. The first rectangle is a medium blue. And I have the words law of God inside that rectangle. I've got the words law of God inside the large rectangle. I've got a dark blue square called law of Moses and I have a light blue rectangle called law of Christ. And Paul says, this is where I'm at. We're writing him down smack dab in the middle of the law of Christ. And Paul says, I'm not outside the law of God. I'm under the law of Christ. So Paul lives under the law of Christ right here. I'm circling this light blue box, which puts him also in the medium blue. Does everyone understand how this works? And he says, this is not where I'm at. I'm not under the law of Moses. And also, is Paul in the white? No, because in the white would be outside the what? The law of God. So where, how are we making this distinction? Where are you going with this? Let's imagine for a moment, I'm looking for another music stand. This new music stand right here that we're moving over here. This is the law of Christ. This is the ending of the law of Moses. This is the introduction of the law of Christ. John 13, verse 33. 
A new command I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. This is the new commandment. Paul says, this is the one I'm under, but does this church set aside everything we know from back here? Does it set aside? No. This would be the law of God. Is Paul living under the law of God? Yes, he is. What law is he not under? The law of Moses. He's on the other side of it. He doesn't negate any of this. He's under the law of Christ. Let me give you some examples. Let me see if I can unpack this. Number one, being delivered from the law of Moses to the law of Christ does not absolve someone of their accountability to the nation's civil laws. I'm under the law of Christ. I can travel as fast as I want. No. Jesus said in Luke 20, 25, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Paul said in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. What does this look like? I'm on a highway all to myself. I'm on a back road all to myself. There's big ditches, farm fields. If I wreck, it's all me. So I'm not under the law of Christ in this case because I don't have to worry about anybody by myself. I don't have to worry about a neighbor. So I can go 150 miles an hour and enjoy the speed of my sports car. No. You're also under the laws of, of the government because of Romans 13.1. So yes, you are under the law of Christ. You're living as a Christian under the law of Christ. But you also have to operate within the laws of a nation. That's an example of, that's just one. I've got two or three more just to try to nail this down so we're concrete as a church. Let me give you another example. Being delivered from the law of Moses to the law of Christ does not, does not negate the words of Christ found in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, quite the contrary. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is, in fact, quoting from the Mosaic Law. He is quoting from the Mosaic Law. But I say to you, so now he's getting ready to communicate to us. I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lust in his intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Has already committed adultery in his heart. So I ask today, those who have been delivered from the law of Moses to the law of Christ should take the words of Christ as more binding to their lives and conduct than anyone else. I'm under the law of, over here, under the law of who? Christ. He is my Lord. He is my king. He is my boss. I submit to everything that he communicates. My rule number one for me is love your neighbor just as Jesus loved others. That's rule number one. But all the words of Christ fall underneath that, including this admonishment as one example. Number three. Being delivered from the law of Moses to the law of Christ, again, does not negate the words of the apostles and the rest of the New Testament. Are you all getting that? So here's Jesus giving us, John 13, verse 33, a new commandment to go with the new covenant. But after Jesus gives this new commandment, his apostles write letters. 
His apostles write letters. And in these letters, there are imperatives. They are apostles sent by who? By, by who? By Jesus, by Christ. Whose apostles are they? His apostles. They are sent by him. And they have in our lives what we can call apostolic what? Apostolic authority. Uh, consider, for example, Hebrews 10, 25. Many of you are, probably have that scripture committed to memory. The complete Jewish Bible, I love this translation, says not neglecting our congregational meetings. You say, well, I can love others without going to church. Well, sure, you can love others without going to church. But you're breaking this imperative. You're ignoring this apostolic imperative, which is do not, do not forsake the assembling as yourselves, but as made a practice of doing, but rather encourage each other. And let us do this the more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. Example number four. Being delivered from the law of Moses to the law of Christ does not negate the mandates and truths communicated in the entire book of Genesis. Consider Matthew 19. Last example. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. I'm using the Legacy Standard Bible because I love the way they magnify where we're quoting from the Old Testament with this uppercase block letters. It just jumps off the page when you see it here. So notice the issue. Can I divorce? Can I divorce my woman, my wife for any reason? Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Where is Jesus quoting from? Where? Genesis 1 and 2. 1 and 2. So is Jesus over here in this law area? Where's he at? Where do I need to move to? I need to move over here, don't I? I need to go all the way over here to in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I need to go all the way to the point where the scripture teaches that all people are made in God's image, both males and females. And then when I move to chapter 2, and I find out that the final admonition in the chapter is, therefore a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to each other, and the two should not be separated. Did you notice Jesus did not quote from the law of Moses? No. He went pre-what? Pre-Moses. He went to the creation order. You know why that is? Because all these truths are still in force. Like be fruitful and multiply, subdue and have dominion over the earth. All those mandates have not been neg negated. None of them have. Let's turn to Galatians chapter three, verse 19. Why are we talking about the law so much again this morning? There is an inseparable relationship between law and sin. Which is why you can't talk about sin no more without talking about what? Law. Right. Look, if there are no posted speed limit signs, I'm not what? I'm not speeding. 
Ever been on a road where there's no posted speed limit signs? I remember traveling from Fort Bliss over to Dallas and there was a section in which there was no posted speed limits. None. I've been on, you've been in Germany? How many have been in Germany where uh, I was there a long time ago, there were no posted speed limits? It was bizarre. Totally different from anything I experienced. You can't be speeding without a speed limit. You can't be sinning without a what? A law. So the conversation we're having this morning is what law are we under? So in Galatians 3.19, Paul asks and answers this question. Why then the law? Why did God give the Israelites a law? Why did he give them a law that had 613 commandments? 600, that's insane. Well, he answers the question. He says, it was added because of transgressions. Let's really grab this. Uh, we go marching through the book of Genesis. Here we are with Abraham. Then we go to Isaac. Now we go to Jacob, 12 sons. Joseph gets launched into Egypt. We're right over here. We're right on the threshold. There's a famine. Israel, Jacob moves his entire family there. And then between the end of Genesis chapter 50 and Exodus 1 is at least 300 years. And during all this time, they've been fruitful and multiplying. And they have two million, is the best guess, Israelites. Moses is raised up as the leader, and he's going to carry them to the promised land. How many feel like giving them this commandment, love one another, would have been enough? Just, just here we go. Love one another. This is what's going to guide you through all your needs. Love one another. Is that going to work for a nation of two million people? No. They need all kinds of what? Laws. Laws that communicate everything about life. Why do we not need that? Because our government has established what? Those laws. And we live under the law of Christ. Say amen if you live under the law of Christ and the laws of the land that you live under. And as you move throughout the world, those laws may change from nation to nation, state to state. What law will go with you everywhere you go as a Christian? The law of Christ. And that's why we get this giant dump of law right here that Israel keeps all the way to the book of Matthew. So I'm going to argue that the law was given for not just one or the other, but both a preventive and provocative reason. Let me talk about that. Number one, preventive. Laws save lives. Laws mitigate carnage. Laws keep a society from degrading into anarchy. All right. What was Israel's number one purpose? Number one. You could say glorify God. Okay, let's set that aside for a moment. I'm going to agree with you. Glorify God. All right. How were they most to glorify God? They are to take the seed, the seed that's going to lead to the Messiah. And they are to guard it as a nation state. They're to guard it. They're to guard it into exile. They're to guard it from generation to generation to generation all the way 
until the birth of the Messiah. Once the Messiah comes into existence, that's Jesus, once Jesus is born, Israel's job is done. They have done what God has called them to do, which is to deliver the Savior into the world. They've done that. And so this, giving them the law, was absolutely necessary to bring the Messiah into the world. Now let's talk about, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. Let's talk about the provocative nature of the law. The provocative nature of the law. So let's ask the question, who can keep 613 codified laws? How long would it take you to memorize 613 codified laws? What do you th- I mean, how old is your child when you start teaching them at a young age to where they've got all 613 committed to memory? They know what I can and what I can't do. They know what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. I'll give you an example. Here's Leviticus 19:18. First commandment. It, it, here it is. No vengeance. Take no vengeance. All right. I think I can do that. I, I, I'm, I'm fairly confident in a lot of situations I can take no vengeance. No vengeance. What about bearing a grudge? All right, let's talk about this. Let's, let's pause for a minute and really unpack this. Let's turn this plexiglass stand into, let's turn it this way. Let's turn it this way. And let's turn it into a new car. I'm in a 2024. I'm in a new car. I'm in a nice car. The car I want is a BMW. And don't come up and give me all the maintenance stuff. I've already done all that research. I don't, don't even talk to me about it. It's just like, you know, the car I want to drive. And John sees me driving this car, and he's always wanted that car, just like me. And they, they've refused to get that car just like I have. Up to this point, I finally bit the bullet and got the car of my dreams. And John pulls out his keys and says, I'll show that pastor. Right across my brand new navy blue BMW X7 SUV. I've thought about this. Okay. We're talking about, you know, $100,000. It's a lot of money. Now. Not executing vengeance would be, John, I don't go find your car and do the same thing. Okay, you wouldn't notice. You know, he does that to my car. I'm going to do that to his car. That would be what? That would be vengeance. So I think pretty highly of myself because you know what I didn't do? I didn't take vengeance. Self-righteous, look at me. I didn't. But look at the next, look at the next statement. Look at the next one. I can't even bear a grudge. You gotta be kidding me. God, you're telling me that when someone keys my brand new BMW maliciously, sister, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do nothing wrong. I didn't insult him. I didn't do anything wrong to you, John. You, does anyone have, come on, I don't need you to get with me right now. How hard would it be not to bear a grudge? The Bible says you can't even bear a grudge. Our response to that is, God, that's too high of a standard. 
That is ridiculous, God. You can't tell me not to bear a grudge. Please understand, you got to deal with this. You got to take your BMW to the shop. You got to explain who did it. You got to explain that you did nothing about it. You're going to have an attitude issue for a long time until you're going to be going, they didn't get it right. They didn't repaint it right. I can tell the difference between the factory job and that side. Left side doesn't look like the right side. Come on. Am I alone? Am I the only one in this church that's honest and can relate to what I'm talking about? Or are there others that might bear a grudge also? This is the most self-righteous church in the city of Fayetteville. I'm telling you, you guys are like perfecto right here, man. You don't sin no more, do you? I'm the only one that sins in this church. You guys have got it down. This is ridiculous. Church, that's the point. That's the provocative nature of the law. It's supposed to provoke you to the point of despair. So you fall on your knees and say, I can't do it, God. If this is your moral standard, I can't meet it. I can't. It's too high. God, can you bring it down? What's God's response? No. It's not moving. Sin no more. Sin no more lest something worse happens to you. By the way, do you know that there's nothing in the New Testament about not holding a grudge? Nothing. It's not even there. So does that, does that mean that I can argue that because it's not in the New Testament that I can hold a grudge? No. See, law, see rule number one. See rule number one. Rule number one is love others like Christ did. How many feel like Jesus held a grudge on the cross? Not one of you. How do we know he didn't? How do we know he didn't? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's unbelievable. It's a level of love that was inconceivable to us. We are supposed to go, I can't love like that, God. And that's exactly where he wants us. That's the point of this entire narrative, is to get the man who's been healed for 38 years to say, that's too high of a standard. I can't meet it. I can't meet that standard. Don't expect me to. I can't do it. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Is Jesus provoking the man? Yes. The unmanned name in John 5 is healed but not saved. He's healed but not saved. His sins are not forgiven. He is a miracle worker, but he's not the man's savior. And how we get him to the point where he needs a savior is you got to get him drowning. You don't throw a life preserver for somebody who can swim. Jesus threatens him with something worse if he continues to sin. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, were to keep track of sins, Yahweh, who could stand before you? Revelation 20, 12, the Bible tells us that the unsaved are going to be judged out of everything that they've done on this earth. All their sins, God is keeping track. But there's forgiveness in the Lord. 
but you are willing to forgive. Why then the law? It was added until transgressions, until the offspring, that's my bottle of water illustration, the offspring, there it is right there, should come to whom the promise had been made. Now that Jesus is in the world, the law, as the guardian, has done its job. Paul writes, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This is the cross. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. All right, let's wrap it up. I'm running out of time. Time's our enemy. Let's get the big point and then we're done. What are the five most glorious words in the entire Bible? What are the five most glorious words in the entire Bible? Well, I would submit to you that they're found in 1 Corinthians Chapter number five, 15, verse 3, where we read these words. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. So let's wrap it up right now, the last minute we have together. The very man, Jesus, who walks up to this guy and says, you sin no more one year later, is now hanging on a cross for the very sins that the man committed for the last year. This is the very thing that sets Christianity apart from everyone else, is the God who says stop sinning is the God who dies for our sins. Nobody has that. If you don't get that, you don't understand Christianity. If your response is not glory, hallelujah. Yes, Lord, I'm going to work harder at not sinning because you died for my sins. This theme is throughout the New Testament. Last slide. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ also died for our sins. Galatians 1, 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father. 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 John 2, 2. Christ is the propitiation. He is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Glory, hallelujah. But not just for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Who dies for the sins of the whole world? Buddha? Muhammad? Confucius? No. The same man who said, sin no more, gave his life for the every sin that the man committed prior and after. Glory, hallelujah. Amen. Father in heaven, we take it for granted. We are guilty of taking it for granted. We have been saved so long, so many years, so many months, so many days, that we don't grasp the degree and the magnitude 
of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Forgive us, O oh God, for taking it for granted. Forgive us for assuming this forgiveness is ours and we don't even give it a second thought. Help us, O oh God, to sin no more. Help us to diligently this week work on loving others like Christ loved them. In Jesus' name, amen.